Welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where I, a current philosophy and classics major, and my former philosophy teacher unpack big philosophical ideas in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a meaningful life. I'm Andrew Graziano, and over there is Mr. Parsons. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to be interviewing Professor Peg O'Connor and discussing her newest book, Higher and Friendly Powers. But before we do that, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm doing great. The Christmas season is upon us, and that means also Christmas break is nearly here. It's just all on the up and up. I'm ready for a break, and, uh, yeah. and life is good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Not too much, uh, not too many weeks of school left, and it's exciting. It's very cold outside, and I'm, <laughs> cold, I'm enjoying cold. that. Cold for Houston, not uh, right. not Boston cold. Uh, but I have my flannel on right now, and I'm enjoying it. So that's great. Another thing too, I forgot if I've ever talked about this, but I think I'm developing a coffee addiction. Uh, actually, <laughs> you, you did mention that in one I episode. I can't remember that. which one. Yeah, you were very disappointed in yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's been growing this entire semester. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is inappropriate for me to talk about for this episode, actually. So, yeah, I've just been just been like cranking these essays out, and one of my I was telling one of my friends about this, who's who's a philosophy and classics guy, who's much smarter than I am, and he's saying, and I thought this was so funny. He said, "You know, Andrew, uh, there's a reason why the Enlightenment happened. It's because uh, everybody stopped drinking as much alcohol." That's right, and which is a depressant, and they they went over to caffeine, the stimulant. So it's it's no wonder they were breaking down, uh, uh, you know, millennia of of work. Yeah, I have read that before. I've I've even heard the phrase, you know, it's that coffee was the the drink of the enlightenment, because yeah, at that point, I mean, all there was was wine, beer, and then of course spirits, and that was highly fueled by the discovery of the Americas and sugar and rum and all of yeah. that kind of stuff. And uh, sure, everyone was boozing it up, uh, but it was it was kind of hard to to string coherent thoughts together um, if you're having too much of that. And so, yeah, uh, tea and coffee were kind of considered the the drink of the Enlightenment. Yeah, well, yeah, is so that I, interesting? I, that's been fueling my Enlightenment. So, well, uh, so, so you got to tell me since you're so new to coffee, are you are you drinking it black or are you putting stuff in it? Uh, how, how are you um, how are you doing your coffee? I don't know all these fancy classifications. I just get a, a cappuccino, uh-huh. a, few, okay. a few few shots of espresso in there, and I, okay. I call it a day. I don't know oh, if that okay. counts as a black or coffee, or I don't know. <laughs> it counts as cappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. So uh, I guess uh, in in Italy, it's uh, americano is the old just black black drip. I guess coffee. yeah. I guess that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't serve that over there. Well, I guess they do, but they, oh, they look do. at you funny. They look at you funny if you order that. They do in Italy. They look yeah. at you funny in most places, honestly. I mean, it's Americano in uh, in England as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, gosh, I'm so excited about this conversation today with Peg O'Connor about her new book, Higher and Friendlier Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And, and I'll say here at the outset, if the title strikes you as something like, oh, you know what? I don't struggle with addiction and suffering. That's not something that's part of my life. Uh, I would like to encourage you that this is this is a book and a conversation that is about really just living as a human being. And it centers around addiction and suffering. 
but certainly applicable for anyone in any walk of life. So it deals primarily with Alcoholics Anonymous, but the connection between the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and William James, the American psychologist and pragmatist philosopher. Anyway, an engaging conversation. Peg is really super interesting to listen to. I hope everyone enjoys. Okay, everybody. Today, we're thrilled to have with us Dr. Peg O'Connor to discuss her latest book out now, which is Friendlier and Higher Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Dr. O'Connor is a professor of philosophy and gender, women, and sexuality studies, as well as chair of the Department of Philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College. Her present research interests include two separate but interesting strains, Wittgenstein's approach to ethics and the philosophy of addiction. She also contributes to public discourse about her areas of interest through contributing to popular media, especially around philosophical issues surrounding addiction, feminist philosophy, and social and political philosophy. Dr. O'Connor is the author of four books, including the one we're discussing today, Friendlier and Higher Powers, as well as Oppression and Responsibility, a Wittgenstein approach to social practices and moral theory. She's received many grants, awards, and fellowships, including the A.A. Heckman Endowed Fellowship, the Hazelden Foundation, and has a book manuscript currently in progress, Recovering Character, Knowing How to Belong to Yourself. Dr. O'Connor, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, and by all means, call me Peg. You bet. Okay, Peg, so before we get to your latest book, uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, We love a good origin story. So could you tell us, how is it that you came to philosophy? Like, sort of, what what is your philosophical origin story? Oh, my philosophical origin story was as an undergraduate, I was trying everything. And I started out, um, my college didn't have a political science department. We had government, but I was studying political theory. So I was really, I was really interested in that. And then my sophomore year, I took a philosophy class. I think it was on philosophy of mind. And it was like a, a, a light bulb went off with me, both in terms of the kinds of questions that were being asked and the kinds of reading that we were doing. Um, I think of philosophical reading as doing a deep dive as kind of excavation or intellectual spelunking. And I always felt with political science that it was more kind of a, a flyover, like taking a big, huge photograph of a huge area. So I remember at one point I was taking both a political theory course and I was taking a philosophy class. And we were reading Hobbes in each of them. And in my political theory course, we pretty much read the Leviathan over two class periods. And in my philosophy class, we never really got even to the political philosophy part of it. We were too busy in, in the metaphysics of it. And I thought, ah, I definitely belong more over on the slow and very in-depth analysis. And then um, I met Wittgenstein, my intellectual companion. Still, mm. all these years later, I was utterly befuddled by him. And he has this wonderful expression about getting a mental cramp. He caused me mental cramps and I was intrigued (laughs) by him. And, you know, how can you not be intrigued by someone who uses such rich images and metaphors and similes in his work? So whether it was a beetle in a box or showing the fly the way out of the fly bottle, I was hooked. And so by the time I figured out what I wanted to study in graduate school, I knew it would have something to do with Wittgenstein. And so Wittgenstein remains my intellectual traveling companion. But, and maybe I should say, I've been deeply influenced by William James. And there are some interesting connections between James and and Wittgenstein that 
I backed into William James through reading Wittgenstein and Wittgenstein being critical of William James. Mm. Interesting. I haven't ever heard of, I haven't heard of that, but uh, that's, that's really cool. I, I look forward to hearing a little bit more about in this episode too. One of our favorite things to ask our guests too is the very easy and simple question, what is philosophy? So <laughs> You call that an easy and simple question? Nice try. Nice try, Andrew. So I understand philosophy as being the study and engagement in the practice of trying to live a meaningful, engaged, and productive life. I mean, philosophy is very much an activity. It isn't just a field of study. And that I think we trace back to Plato to say to know the good is to do the good. And so philosophy has always been an activity and it's always been a social activity. It's an activity that's best done in the company of others, not just with whom you agree, but with whom you disagree. And I think that's one of the great losses in civic, civil culture today is that we've become so polarized that we no longer deal with people with whom we disagree and try to enter into productive dialogue. So for me, philosophy really sets the table for all the kinds of discussions and struggles that we humans have about making meaning and making sense. And I think it's got the richest treasure trove of concepts to Mm -hmm. help us be engaged people in the world. And that contemporary philosophy, ancient philosophy, modern philosophy, we tackle many of the same questions, but the answers that we give to them continue to evolve. And that's what I find really exciting. I'm equally excited going back and rereading Plato for the umpteenth time because I'm, I'm teaching it again and reading some new contemporary philosophy, asking similar kinds of questions about the the nature of justice, for example, or in teaching Euthyphro, asking about the the nature of piety and, and, and what does that mean for how people live their lives? Yeah, your, your response reminds me of one of my favorite philosophers, Mary Midgley, and how she says, mm-hmm. and I will paraphrase, that philosophy is not answers written in stone for all time, but uh, philosophy is meant to address our current situation. Absolutely. And and philosophy helps us to create meaning and value. It's not like we go out there and find meaning and value. Each of us has to create meaning and value. And we create it not just as a solo or solitary enterprise, but we do it in concert with others and connection with others. And sometimes there's harmony and sometimes there's cacophony, <laughs> but that's what we do. Yeah, I'm also introing right now with, with my students uh, ethics. It reminds me of of some that we've read this past week about philosophy is doing. I think it's it's really interesting because we are forever getting the charge in popular media where philosophy is really treated like the pinata at a birthday party with a bunch of 10-year-old sugared up kids, (laughs) you know, that we get hammered in a kind of way that we aren't useful. Mm. or that philosophy is a luxury, and it's anything but a luxury. So whether you're teaching a straight-up ethics course or whether you're teaching a class on epistemology, asking about how do we know things, what are the types of things that can be known, I can think of nothing more important 
for people to be able to make judgments about knowledge claims, to be able to evaluate them, to be able to make moral claims, to be able to talk about their grounding of their moral judgments. So if anything, philosophy is a necessity, but it gets treated as if it's a luxury. And I think that that is an absolutely terrible thing because in my most cynical self, I think that many politicians don't want a populace that can think critically and in engaging and engaged, sustained kinds of ways. And so I think, it, you know, there's a war on the humanities. You know, everything is the STEM fields, the STEM fields, the STEM fields. But then again, you know, I teach at a liberal arts college where the liberal arts don't just happen in the humanities departments, but that a liberal arts education infuses every single class, whether it's a health exercise science, whether it's physics, whether it's art, whether it's history. That's really interesting you say that. I think at a school like mine, it's a very research-heavy and research heavy school. And so I think it's, it's very opposite of that, where uh, the humanities is, is kind of swept under the rug. But I do think I'll, some students are, there seems to be some kind of natural pull a lot of students have towards meaning and value and all the things you were saying. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, is talking to uh, some philosophy professors of mine, and so I'm curious about your opinion on it. It seems like, and maybe this is just me looking in on it from my like little contemporary philosophy bubble, uh, but it seems like there's kind of this separation between using philosophy to find meaning and value in life and kind of exploring these kind of fringe cases in A's and and alpha and beta theories of time and such and kind of weird topics in epistemology in the analytic tradition, at least. Do you think that's true? Do you think there was kind of this separation philosophy that kind of gives it, gave it its bad rap? I think it has a bad reputation for a variety of reasons. And, And some of them are fairly benign. And then some of them have to do with the fact that the analytic tradition has really kind of won the battle and carried the day that most departments, undergraduate and even graduate programs are heavily analytic. And so there was very much of a shifting of the subject in philosophy and something like continental approaches, something like American pragmatist approaches, they're marginalized in higher education, which I, which I think is a horrible um, kind of thing, and that most philosophy departments in the U.S., very few of us yeah. have someone who can do genuine comparative philosophy kind of work. And so I think that that's part of the problem is that philosophy in some ways has become disconnected from the common ordinary traffic of life. I, I mean, I think it's it's so interesting that when you look at French philosophy, for example, when you think about Sartre and Camus and and Beauvoir, Mm. that they were public intellectuals who were incredible political activists, and that it wasn't so easy to draw a line between what is their philosophical work and then what's their political work. And I think that there is a, a group of philosophers doing what we call public philosophy, who are trying to bring philosophy back into regular contact and bring it back into the world, into a whole variety of different disciplines. And that's in part what I understand myself to be doing with the work that I do on addiction. It's a kind of public philosophy because I would argue that Mm -hmm. addiction is one of the greatest healthcare epidemics that we as a country face. 
And that philosophy has something really interesting and useful to people who study addiction or who work with people who are addicted, either on the causes of addiction or, or how to treat it. So I, I think that th there is a divide in philosophy. I won't lie. I go to the APA, the American Philosophical Association, and sometimes I look at the program and my, you know, my fraud alert in the Regency Ballroom, please, fraud alert, because I can't even understand the subjects or the, the titles of some of the papers. And I read the abstracts and I think, I am the dumbest one in this room. And then I think, wait a minute, that's one area, that's one set of questions about philosophy. Good for the people who want to go for that. I want to applaud that. I never want philosophy to contract and become exclusionary in certain kinds of ways. So people who want to, my, my, my dear colleague works on vagueness and I'm like, go for it. I don't quite understand what it means, but go for it. I'm happy for you. I have another philosopher who, another philosophy colleague who works on battle rap and theology and philosophy. And I want to say, go for it. And another who works on food. So I have the good fortune of being in a department where we are encouraged to expand our philosophical interests because we believe at the heart that philosophy matters and we we need to show it. We need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Well, this is a perfect segue into the topic that we're going to talk about today, your book and the everyday traffic, as you said, of, of philosophy and, and how it should be involved in that. Uh, your book, Higher and Friendlier Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering, like you say, is a, an epidemic in the United States and something that philosophy should be involved with. So could you tell us a bit uh, about the book and, and its genesis and essentially what your thesis is of it? So um, this book is a consequence of an itch that I've wanted to scratch since I was 19 years old, and I'm now 57. So this has had a long time to uh, germinate. So when, when I was 19 years old, I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So I am in recovery. I'm, I'm very out about that. And if you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know that the term higher power appears quite regularly. And in the 12 steps, we ask for God to remove our defects of character, God to do certain things for us, that God language is very front and center in Alcoholics Anonymous. And even though there's a proviso, God, as we mm -hmm. understand him, you still have the gendered language. It's very much of a providential Christian God. So I hightailed it out of my first AA meeting very, very quickly. Um, that just wasn't for me. But I also knew that there's got to be more to higher power than just a providential understanding of God. And I had read somewhere that Bill Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, credited William James as being a co-founder. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Because I knew that James had died in about 1910, and AA doesn't come into existence until the mid to late 1930s. So I thought, well, that was kind of interesting. So I went on a hunt. I wanted to figure out what that was about. And the story is, and the founding of AA is something of a mythology, but every program or every religion needs a good origin story. So the origin story of AA is this. So Bill Wilson was a failed businessman who had lost all of his money. He was living off of his in-laws and he couldn't get sober, that he was what we might call a, a raging alcoholic. And so in December of 1934, uh, his brother-in-law gives him the money to check into 
the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York, which is an asylum for the inebriate. That's the language of the time. And Bill is defiant. He throws up his hands and he said, you know, if there's a God, show your face now. I'm willing to do anything to rid myself of this desire to drink. And then whoosh, in comes this gust of spirit. And Bill says, and I felt my desire to drink, you know, be lifted automatically. And so not long after, he thinks, oh, my gosh, I'm losing my mind. So he was probably going through alcohol withdrawal, which is the one kind of withdrawal that can kill you. And hallucinations can be part of withdrawal. And he was being treated with belladonna, which can also cause with, with um, hallucinations. So there's good reason for, to think that he might be going nuts here. But his friend gave him William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, which was published in 1902. And that is an incredible compendium of first-person stories of people in whom or for whom spiritual impulses burn as an acute fever. And that book has several examples of people who we now call alcoholic or drug-addicted or addicted to sex who have a, con a conversion or a transformation of the sort that Bill Wilson had. So in that book, Varieties, William James uses the term higher power or higher powers, and he calls it a friendly power. And James had a far more expansive account of what a higher power could be. So in his lectures given to a very highly educated Scottish audience, he would talk about what we Christians call God, but in other traditions might be called something else, or he'd say that Anything that is expansive, that helps a person either to reach out to something greater than themselves or to find a greater sense of self or even sort of greatness within them, a heaven within, that can be a higher power. And he also says the transcendental ideals of Ralph Waldo Emerson, truth and beauty, moral principles, a sense of human decency, patriotism something more that he doesn't identify. He says anything can be a higher power so long as it's just big enough for a person to reach out towards it or to reach within themselves to find it. That's a very different definition of higher power than a providential God. So in writing this book, it isn't meant as a corrective, you know, finger wag to AA, like, you know, your founder right. got this principle wrong. And this may be just a little teeny tiny little bit in that because we academics <laughs> like to be right because we can be petty at times. I'm not going to deny it. But it was really to issue two different invitations, an invitation to people who love AA and who are comfortable with that concept of God to find out more about William James, who did have a huge influence on the founding mm -hmm. of AA. That's one group. And the other group was someone like me at 19 years old who couldn't square herself to this Christian-centric providential God, but who needed a lot of help and wasn't going to find it in AA mm -hmm. at that time. So to expand that concept of higher and friendly powers, to offer that as alternatives to people, and to say to people, a higher and friendly power doesn't do anything to you like a providential God lifting a defect of character from you or lifting a desire from you. A higher and friendly power is what mm -hmm. enables you to do something. So ultimately, William James argues that each of us can author his, her or their own conversion and undergo a remarkable transformation. 
And the most we can say a conversion of the sort that Bill Wilson had wasn't proof for God's existence. No, 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 no. That's the stuff of theology. It was a psychological process. It feels like maybe an external God came in and did something because it's so sudden and big. And he says, you know, these conversions oftentimes are ineffable. Our language fails and they're transitory. We feel like we know something different, you know, that we come to have a different kind of knowledge, but it's a psychological process. That's what it is. But you make meaning and value out of that process. What do you do with it? So at the end of the day, William James says, the origin of the conversion doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's what you do with it. And and that to me continues to resonate with philosophy is always doing. It's always activity. It isn't just, you know, thinking and staying in your head as if that is completely disengaged from other parts of living. It's, It's all about living. Can I ask one clarification question? Can you tell me what you mean when you say a providential God? So what I have in mind is a Christian-centric God. So the God that is all-loving, all-benevolent, all-knowing, omnipotent, so omni-omni-God. And the God of, so I was raised Catholic, 13 years of Catholic school. And so the picture of God that I have, you know, what, what I heard was God is always watching you. He sees everything. He knows when you sin. He knows when you make mistakes. He knows when you're generous. The idea that there is this all-powerful God who can, whenever he wants, and it was definitely gendered male, can change the course of your life. Or God has a plan for you, and it's your business to stay out of the way. So part of the language in AA lends itself to that, that we talk about, you know, it was self-will run riot. So it wasn't about my will, but we need to give it over. I need to give my will over to God's will. And so the idea that there is this being that has a will or a plan for us, I mean, at its most extreme, it kind of sounds like a kind of determinism Mm -hmm. in a kind of way, which a deterministic worldview always questions free will and choice. And that was another thing that William James Mm -hmm. grappled with. He had to, so the whole James family is interesting. And William James, as a, as a young man in the 1870s, is severely, severely depressed. He's got acute melancholia, and he's seriously contemplating suicide. I mean, he has towed right up to the edge of it. And he makes a conscious decision to believe in free will. He makes a conscious decision to believe that Mm. his actions matter and that his Mm. actions matter could make his life matter. And so William James argues that that faith is just simply a willingness to live on a possibility or maybe where the results Mm. aren't certified in advance. And that is directly contrary to the notion of there's a God who's got a will, there's a plan, all of this is going to happen, and your job is just to kind of march along with it. So William James, I think, invites all of his readers and his listeners at the time to think about the ways in which what we now talk about is, is having agency in a kind of way. And, and I know that more contemporary liberal Christian theologians will say God does leave plenty of room for us to have free will and make free choices and all of that. But for for many people, it still feels too constraining in a kind of way to think that there that there is this God out there that that has these kinds of powers and that we stand in a certain relationship to that God. 
Yeah, and I think like some of the core tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is that you must surrender to God and admit that every bit of this is out of your control. Uh, and that seems a bit contrary. You, we were talking about surrender. So when you surrender, I mean, that's a really difficult word because the idea is with surrendering, it's oftentimes mm-hmm. having to give up something that you don't want to give up. Like I surrender to the conquering forces. <laughs> I surrender my passport as a condition of my bail when I've been arrested for some hideous crime. That surrendering oftentimes seems as this having to give up in a kind of way that you wouldn't normally want to do it. So one of the things that I suggest, instead of thinking about surrendering, thinking about renouncing something, thinking about renunciation, that that gives it a far more active quality. When I renounce something, I say, I no longer want to do this, or I no, want to, I no longer want to be aligned with this way of thinking or with that group of people or with these kinds of politics. I renounce it in the sense of I actively choose to put something down and in some ways I make a pledge or commitment to myself to do things differently. So when, you know, instead of thinking of surrendering as just crying uncle, okay, somebody else take over the leading of my life. I give up. I've screwed up so phenomenally. I can't do it anymore. When I renounce certain ways of doing things or being in the world I'm saying, I don't want to be like that anymore. And instead, I'm going to be like this. And that's a key insight from William James. He says, you know, when people are getting primed or ready to have a conversion, so to radically change themselves, either suddenly like Bill Wilson did, or gradually over time, kind of incrementally, he says, two things really need to be present. One is a sense of the the wrongness or the incompleteness or the kind of suffering that comes from being in the world in the ways that a particular person is, right? I understood the wrongness and completeness of my life as a high school student and as an undergraduate in college, as a raging alcoholic. I got all the ways I was screwing up. I got all the ways that I was making mistakes, that I was squandering opportunities, that I was harming myself in all these kinds of ways. And it's important to have that sense of incompleteness Mm. and wrongness And you can get stuck in that, though. He says, and you can get stuck in that, James says, if you don't have the second thing, which is a positive ideal that you long to compass. You have to look for something bigger, better, or different. And that just circles us back around to, Mm -hmm. and that's what a higher and friendly power can be. It may be a better version of myself. Like, I don't want to be that same person who's been so unreliable, and I drink my way out of friendship circles. And so I sort of renounce that way of being, that means that I have to start showing up some more. I need to show my reliability. I need to do things that earn the people of trust so that I can become trustworthy. So you got to have those two things, the wrongness and positive ideals. And I think in recovery, one of the great strengths of AA is that it isn't self-help in the narrowest sense. It's self and other help. So we help each other. So someone who comes in really struggling with their use, perhaps not sober yet, can hear the stories of others and say, well, well, I didn't quite have it as bad as that guy. Or, oh, yeah, I did all those things. But look at what that person is doing now. And I think that people in recovery can play that role for some time as being a positive ideal 
as as showing the transformative power how your life changes when alcohol or drugs or certain behaviors don't burn as this is an expression from William James, Mm -hmm. your habitual center of personal energy. So, you know, when you are able to expand out and pick your eyes up instead of just focusing on everything that's wrong with me and to look out and see what other people are doing, that that's all part of the process of renouncing and becoming a different kind of person. And it's very empowering. Again, self-authoring. It isn't authored by a God doing that to you. A higher and friendly power enables you to do those certain sorts of things. Right. It's a very empowering concept. And and I think maybe this might connect in a bit with James's concept or, or his pragmatic view of philosophy. So in chapter one, you state, uh, what is crucial for James is not the content of one's spiritual beliefs. Rather, it is how one experiences them and how one acts because of them. So this echoes this kind of larger theory of James's, of, of that of pragmatism. How does James's approach to religion embody or fit in with this pragmatic theory and, and view? And how might that connect back in with the idea of a, of a providential God and the approach of your position with AA? Oh, that's a great question. And, and certainly that this goes hand in hand with James' pragmatism. So varieties came out before James started publishing on pragmatism. And pragmatism, he'll, he'll tie back to purse. So, I mean, there's an interesting intellectual history there. James was both a pragmatist, so he wasn't going to be someone who subscribed to certainly nothing like platonic forms of truth and justice and beauty and all that. And he was going to talk about the ways in which we make truth and the ways in which we make fact, and that truth always has a kind of utility or usefulness to it. And and James gets absolutely pilloried by academic philosophers with his pragmatist views about (laughs) about truth. So go back to my earlier comments about analytic philosophy won the day um, with respect to that. But as a, as a pragmatist and as a pluralist already in these lectures, James is very clear in saying, I'm not interested in proving the truth of any one particular faith tradition. I'm not interested in proving if God exists. That's the stuff of theology. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested more in human nature and these spiritual impulses and the different ways that they can burn. And James is very careful in varieties of never tipping his hand of what his own theological beliefs are. And he he always is careful in saying, you know, what we Christians call, even though he himself really wasn't a practicing Christian, he had been raised in a Christian background. I mean, his his own father was an interesting case in the philosophy of religion of, you know, someone who started out as a Presbyterian and then became um, far more interested in kind of mystical experiences in the more kind of out there religious writings. So James himself wasn't a Christian and he caught a lot of flack because Christians thought he was too pantheistic and non-Christians thought he was too Christian. And it's only at the very end of varieties and then later in a pluralist universe that he tips his hand about what he thinks is going on. He says, you know, as for me, you know, I like to believe that human beings are in the universe, much like our cats and dogs are in our houses, where there's so much going on around them that they don't understand, but yet there's some continuity with it. And he said, we human beings are like that in the larger universe. 
You know, what we can know going on around us is not all that much. We're part of it, but we're not it. So there's a certain kind of humility there as well. And so for me, I'm perfectly content being like a dog or cat in the universe with respect to what my own religious beliefs might be. And I think James always encourages that kind of that openness, that expansiveness, and, the, and that way of trying to reject what he takes to be a problem of a lot of religions of trying to prove all other religions wrong and my religion is right. He just, he has no, he has no interest in those questions. Mm. And so I think that's, it's interesting. You know, he says, I want to focus on all of the spiritual experiences of individuals, but you always have to be careful when one person's intense spiritual experience becomes the basis for a religion or becomes the basis for in this case, Alcoholics Anonymous, a program of recovery. He said, because someone else can't have a spiritual experience for you, and each person in some ways should be in charge of their own spiritual impulses, how they direct them. But he says religions are like corporations, and they have dogmas, and they have doctrines, and people become kind of habitually religious or, you know, have a religion of a certain faith just by sheer habit. And how this comes back to Alcoholics Anonymous is that Bill Wilson's conversion story features quite prominently in the book Alcoholics Anonymous in the first 164 pages that the World Services Office of Alcoholics Anonymous has pretty much said, you can never edit, you can never change those passages, you can never change those first 164 pages. So the, what they call the big book, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, has become a, a quasi-sacred text that people read. And there's always new editions where there might be different stories told. And even Bill Wilson understood early on with a second printing, he added a second appendix about spiritual experience. And this is where he makes reference to William James to say there are all different kinds of examples of, he called it an educational conversion. It's what James calls a volitional or a gradual, a gradual one. So that his big aha tsunami conversion shouldn't be taken as the exemplar or the paradigm for what it means. But unfortunately, many people do because of how that text is treated. So back to James so for me, as a person in recovery, my recovery, my spiritual impulses, whatever form they take, have to burn at my center. If they start to becoming dulled or habitual, then I start to function on autopilot in a kind of way. And James read Kierkegaard. So, you know, Kierkegaard, who's always worried about <laughs> one's spiritual state and one's spiritual balance, yeah. You know, that, that running on autopilot is one of the most dangerous things that we human beings can do. And I think William James would agree with him and say he's right. So what that means for people in recovery is don't start running on autopilot in your own recovery. And that was a good, that was a good lesson for me as well. I needed to be reminded of that. Can you t talk a little bit more about uh, not going on autopilot? Why is that a, a bad thing for people who aren't familiar with Kierkegaard? Kierkegaard troubles me in all kinds of ways. I loved him as an undergraduate. He terrified me so much. I couldn't read him for 15 years. And then I got the dumb idea to teach him one time in an intro to philosophy class. And I thought, now I remember why I don't teach Kierkegaard because he just frightens me. Because he made me think about the fact that I may have faith of some certain sort. And Kierkegaard 
pointed out in many ways that it isn't so much the fear that you might fall into the abyss, but it's you might jump. And so that real notion of of individual responsibility. So where this comes with autopilot, you know, Kierkegaard says we are balances of finitude and infinitude, necessity and possibility. And that something like angst or despair is a kind of spiritual disease or condition that we are out of whack in some kind of way, that we are in an imbalance in a kind of way. And when we run on autopilot in too many areas of our lives, particularly in our spiritual area of our lives, we aren't being properly properly aware of needing to actively maintain that balance. So running on autopilot isn't, I'm not going to make the categorical judgment that it's bad all the time. It's very adaptive response to certain situations. The problem becomes, becomes a problem of life when that autopilot functioning starts to expand to other areas of life where that should be where your most passionate commitments are or most of your intentionality is or where your passions are in a kind of way. And to run on autopilot in a certain kind of way, even when life is really good, this is the other thing that that just terrified me about Kierkegaard. He said that happiness is despair's greatest hiding place. And I thought, oh my God, what does that mean? And I thought, I actually understand what that means, that you can be hitting all these kinds of external benchmarks or benchmarks that you've set for yourself in your career. I want to graduate from college. I want to go to graduate school. I want to get this job. I want to have this partner. I want to have a dog. I want to have a family. And you can be hitting all those benchmarks. Do, 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 do. And at some point you might wake up and do what I did. I woke up one morning and I thought, I'm a mouse running around the trim board of my own life. Mm. It was a thought as clear as day. I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? And what it meant was I was just kind of running around my own life. I'd kind of get caught. I don't know, Andrew, how old you are, but did you have habit trails then? You know, where the little hamsters or gerbils would just run around. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Plastic environment. And I thought, oh my God, I have created a beautiful habit trail for myself. Mm where I've just been so busy meeting my goals and setting new goals and meeting my expectations, go peg (laughs) that I was so out of touch with myself that I had lost myself. And I understand addiction as a kind of Mm. losing of oneself. And I thought, peg, you have been sober more than 20 years and you have lost yourself and you didn't even notice it. Mm. You lost yourself in trying to have everything that you said was going to make you happy And you don't even know who you are anymore or why you're doing the things that you're doing. And so Kierkegaard has this wonderful quotation from The Sickness Unto Death um, that says, the greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, is sure to be noticed. But we don't notice that we lose ourselves. Mm-hmm. So autopilot is one way that a person can lose his, her, or themselves and not even notice it. And then something happens where you begin to notice it or you catch a glimpse of it, or it's like that talking head song, you know, this isn't my beautiful wife. This isn't my beautiful house. You're like, if I haven't been living my life, who has been? Mm-hmm. Profoundly disorienting. So this is why I'm so careful with Kierkegaard <laughs> reading and teaching. 
Ah! <laughs> That's great. It, uh, it so makes me think of uh, one of those uh, existentialist names or titles, uh, existential boredom. It's like when you've achieved everything in your life and everything is good, uh, suddenly you just kind of look around and since you've accomplished it all and everything is good, you look around and say like, well, well, what now? Everything's good. Yeah. And, and that's just so profoundly disorienting because maybe it's a kind of self-deception too, because, you know, you tell yourself, oh, you keep setting all these goals and, you know, you're meeting them. Oh, aren't you just all that? But who are you? I mean, what can you do if you were to take away, you know, I think many of us keep pretty rigid guardrails on our lives. And, and I think this might be true, particularly people in recovery. We like our guardrails. You know, we, we know what kind of mischief we can get into. And we tend to like routine. That routine keeps us going forward. But I think that, you know, getting lost in routine is a kind of self-deception. So here's, here's another thing that I love about philosophy. I mean, to talk about all the different forms of self-deception and self-knowledge. And, and those are the questions of, of philosophy that every single one of us grapples with, even if we don't put the same terms or labels on them, that, you know, what does it mean to know yourself isn't the kind of Cartesian introspection with your big LED flashlight of reason going into your nooks and crannies and nothing is left undiscovered there, but it's, it's all these different kinds of, of dynamics and that, you know, if, if you aren't properly attentive to yourself, you just don't know yourself anymore. And that's horrifying. And there's a a little bit of contradiction involved there too. When you mentioned guardrails, like guardrails are obviously very helpful at certain times. And so there's this tension, there's this balance between the two. It's a tension. Yeah. And if if you always just, you know, stay within those guardrails, you you, you can get on autopilot and you also become less willing to kind of off road, Mm -hmm. you know, to, check out, see what's going on over there or to take a detour or things like that. And, you know, I guess I'd say if I've learned anything that sometimes the detours are far more interesting and meaningful than sort of just doing the, the Google map or the map quest to get from point A to point yeah. B in the most direct way. <laughs> I think at this point in my life, I want to see C, D, E, and F. G's up for good. grab, but you know. It's about being attentive and and awake and aware. And we tend Mm. not to do that as much as we should. Andrew, I saw you highlighted a question on on free will. Do you want to? Yeah, I think that's a a great question here. It seems like free will is an important part of this conversation. Um, And you write in, in chapter five that addiction has been called the disease of free will. Other researchers describe the brain as being hijacked or commandeered by alcohol, drugs, and other addictive behaviors. This is why Alcoholic Anonymous theory includes reliance and uh, surrender to a theistic God necessary to overcome addiction. But James believed in free will. What was James's stance on free will and uh, how does it fit mm-hmm. or what role can it play in recovery? Some philosophers say free, the discussions of free will are some of the biggest boondoggles around. <laughs> and, and other people say, oh, that is the most pressing question in philosophy. And I'm, I'm someone like, yeah. It is important. I mean, if I believe that my actions don't matter at all in the grand scheme of things, then that's going to, to me, lend itself to resignation and even worse, fatalism. 
And I think this is what William James was struggling with as a young person, deciding whether or not he should kill himself. You know, did his life matter? Is life worth living? Which is the name of an uh, of a talk that he gave in the say late 1890s. I'm terrible with dates. And to believe in free will is to have a kind of faith. And faith isn't about theology at all. Faith for James is something akin to a working hypothesis. It's a, it's a what if. Faith is a willingness to act and live on maybes where the results aren't mm-hmm. certified in advance, but where you still have to act. And I think it's in life, is life worth living? He asked the question, people worry about faith all the time. And so he says, you wonder whether or not someone likes you. Does this person like me? I think, you know, does Derek like me? Does Andrew like me? And James says, if you act as if they do like you, it's far more likely to become a fact that they do like you. If you act as if they don't like you, you're also going to bring about the fact that they probably won't like you. So the relationship between faith and fact is dynamic and it's interactive. And, you know, it's a chicken egg question, you know, which comes first, faith faith or fact. But the idea is my actions have to make a difference and they have to be chosen. I can't believe that I am just a character actor in a script that I didn't write and I don't know the outcome because that would be a source of torment to think that your actions have no meaning to think that your life has no meaning would be a kind of torment. I mean, I think that's something that Nietzsche gets absolutely right. You know, he says that each of us suffers, that doesn't define us. It's what we do with that suffering. How do we transform it? How do we make meaning of it? Mm -hmm. And the worst kinds of suffering is the kind that seems meaningless or senseless. So, you know, William James is, is echoing something like that in deciding, in believing that our choices matter and that we do have control to a certain extent over parts of our living. And we don't have control over other parts of our living, but in general, we haven't worried about those. Most of us don't worry every day that we really don't have control over gravity. I mean, I don't wake up gnashing my teeth every day when my feet hit the floor because of gravity. We're totally fine not having control in some areas of our lives. But we identify areas in which we do have control and we figure out how to exercise that control. So... You know, the serenity prayer is helpful. And and I say, go back to Epictetus, who says, really, happiness or living well comes from having a clear understanding of what's in your control and what's out of your control. And how you choose to act in particular situations, that's in your control. And how you choose to respond to certain situations, that's in your control. And so, you know, not to get into big, huge metaphysical distinct, you know, distinctions and discussions about free will, but I think it's much harder to make the argument against free will than it is to make the argument for it. Because I think our common sense regularly shows us that people do act freely. Our entire criminal justice system is predicated on free will, that it right. exists. Right. Yeah. And this is all wrapped up in James's theory of the, of the will to believe, right? And you know, when, when I introduce this topic to, to students, they're, they're oftentimes a bit troubled by mm-hmm. it. They think it's fanciful thinking. And, you know, James is... Why fanciful? 
Well, they think it's sort of wrapped up in this concept of just positive thinking that's not really grounded in reality. You know, so, so his quote, you know, my first act of free will to will be to believe in free will. Hmm. And, and of course, I always give the example of which I yes. believe is from uh, is life worth living. Where at the end, he talks about making this leap across a terrible chasm when you're climbing a mountain and that the belief that you will succeed in making that jump will energize yep. and enable your feet to make that leap. Because if you doubt, you're going to drag your toe. That's right. That's right. Right? So you, you make that other fact. You make it be a fact that you don't make the leap. And, and so yeah. in the, the area of, say, uh, attempting, which I think is foolish, but attempting to objectively prove the existence of God or faith in God or something like that, the will to believe, at least to some of my students, seems very just, just sort of fanciful. You can't believe a fact. You can't believe something into fact. Yeah. And sort of the pragmatist in James says, oh, yes, you can. And we do it all the time. <laughs> we do it all the time. Yep. Yes, you can. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Judge, a, uh, judge an action by its fruits. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have another question, but this is, this is a bigger question. Uh, so we can keep it to the end. If you want to ask something, Mr. Parsons. Oh, um, uh, the siren song is the most extensive metaphor you use in the book and it comes near the end in chapter eight. Uh, could you discuss its importance and how it relates to living with, with what William James called living with an acute fever? So James had said very early on in these lectures that he's interested in people for whom spiritual impulses burn as an acute fever. So people who really have that at their core and it's what animates them. And in chapter eight, I'm talking about people for whom recovery burns as their acute fever. And the thing, though, and this also comes from Kierkegaard, ah, you know, he says, you might not be able to tell the night of faith from anyone else. You know, the night of faith may be the, the shopkeeper. And, you know, he may perhaps dance a little bit and he doesn't sort of ride the pine of life. And I was thinking about the ways in which people in long-term recovery, sometimes to go back to the expression, run it on autopilot, you know, that they don't have as proactive a relationship with that part of themselves. And and I was thinking about the ways in which cravings are discussed in much of the addiction literature. And cravings oftentimes are presented something akin to, to muggers, you know, there you are a person in recovery and suddenly you see or smell or get a taste of something. And suddenly all that craving just boom, knocks you flat on your rear end. And I thought, you know, that picture of craving might work for people who are newer in recovery. But what about those of us who are in longer recovery? And I thought about the ways in which people who are in longer recovery are perhaps more susceptible to what we might call a long con. So the ways in which someone is susceptible, they might be saying, well, you know, I've got this down. I haven't used, I haven't had anything to drink in 20 years. My life is good. Everything's going on. I'm never going to relapse. And we all know that the best targets for con people are people who think that they are too smart to be cheated. And and I think we see this sometimes people in recovery. And, And I may have been one of the people who was thinking this way. And so I love Greek mythology. And I was thinking about the the mythology of the sirens. So 
the sirens are the crazy bird ladies who will, with their beautiful song, make ships crash into the rocky shoals or wash up. And the men will be so enamored with the singing that they won't even bother to eat. And so there are a couple of instances in in which our Greek heroes could sail past the sirens and all of them involve listening or doing something else. And so one was uh, Theseus coming back and the other was Odysseus coming back from the Trojan war. And, Odysseus said to his crew, you tie me up to that mast. And if I beg for you, if I command you to untie me, tie the knots even more tightly and and block your own ears. So the sirens are so captivating, not just by how they sing, but what they sing. The sirens know who's on the ship. And I had forgotten this until a colleague reminded me of it. And so the sirens are singing to Odysseus in particular, saying, here you are coming back from 10 years of war. You've been great heroes, but what's the heroic nature in surviving a war? But I can tell you what your life was like, and I can tell you what it will be in the future. So who doesn't want to hear a song all about them? But thankfully, Odysseus gets past. And so The connection to cravings is this, that the further we get away from our active using, perhaps the more likely we are to engage in a little revisionist history. That really wasn't all that bad, or I was such a different person. I I don't have any strong evidence that I would go back that way, so maybe I would be okay. And you, you look around and you see everyone else is having fun. I'm not having fun. And my life is going to continue to remain great, but now I'll get to drink. So my future life is going to be right. So that siren song, you get so busy thinking about how yeah, life wasn't all that bad, but how great it could be. And you'd have the joys of drinking and all that again, that that's exactly when you crash in a kind of way. So that that piece actually means a lot to me because I had been, I think, guilty of thinking, well, I've got this beat. You know, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. And then I realized, you know, oh, wait a minute. I've lost myself in this different kind of way. Um, The idea that um, our history can be revisionist Mm -hmm. and our hopes for the future can be overly optimistic. And that's why the siren song was so effective, because they know exactly who's there. And each of us knows exactly what it is that we want or think we want or think we can have. And so that's why that that sirens that sirens example is is meaningful because we don't talk about the different forms of craving. We just think of them as the muggers. And I'm saying now for many of us, they're more like the sirens. Sounds so good. It's all yeah. about me and then crash. Yeah, it's really powerful imagery. Mm-hmm. Something that you've been mentioning a lot, uh, just listening to you in this podcast, is you referencing meaning and value and uh, the importance of finding meaning and value. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Do you think that there's some objective nature into meaning and value, at least in the slightest sense of it? I remember you mentioning that meaningful activities involve others. Uh, So I'm assuming that kind of contributes, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm no longer, maybe my younger philosophical self was something of a, of a realist about values. If I'm a realist, I'm not a realist in the same sense of, of Plato. 
that I think they're very much meanings and values are very much things that we make, we create, we construct, and that we revise in certain kinds of ways. And that this is where Wittgenstein comes in, that the language games we play, the practices in which we participate, those are where we make meaning and value. And that those meaning and values can change depending upon the uses that we make of them. And we sometimes make, we're very intentional in making meanings or making certain things have value because we're trying to to serve certain ends or to affect certain kinds of changes. And so that's where the, the sort of the public the ineliminable public and social nature of meaning and value are the mm. reason why I think we need to pay so much attention to our relationships and our connections and, and the way that we, that we use meanings and values in the world. I mean, that they are, they are something that have uses and they're something that we put to use and that they can be liberatory or they can be terribly oppressive and harmful. We need to pay more attention to the conditions under which we're looking for and making meaning and value. And then I, I wanted to ask you this too. You said you found William James through a backdoor of Wittgenstein. Uh, can, can, you tell, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Wittgenstein was one of the worst read philosophers ever. I really don't know who he read. I know he read Kierkegaard because he asked for some Kierkegaard books when he was an Italian prisoner of war. Really? And that's also where he wrote the Tractatus. So I always say to my students, if Wittgenstein can write the Tractatus, you can write that second paper when you've got a, another paper due. Um, <laughs> you know, something like that. But Wittgenstein was... Terribly read. He had no interest in, in academic philosophers. He had no use for them. And he did, though, as a very young man, read varieties and read some of James's um, principles of psychology. And he thought that James was asking interesting questions, but answering them in the wrong way. So if you read Philosophical Investigations, you'll see that William James's name is one that comes up fairly regularly. And he was deeply concerned with James's notion of the I as the self and the me that is the subject, um, or, you know, the, the, the I as a pure ego and the me as the, you know, empirical object. And though he thought James was wrong he was wrong in an interesting and productive kind of way. And so late in his life, Wittgenstein is having a conversation with one of his former students who became a psychiatrist, uh, Morris O'Connor Drury. And he says to Drury, Drury reports this conversation, that Wittgenstein said, you know, I read William James and I think he's such a good He's good for my soul in some ways because he was such a decent human being and that it was a young Wittgenstein who read James and James is such an astute and careful person who chronicles human suffering and loss and alienation and also the possibilities for transformation and regeneration. I think that that always stuck with Wittgenstein as a young person and as an adult, because Wittgenstein 
his own life was tortured in so many ways. He was a tortured individual. He was terribly unhappy. But in William James, he could still find some optimism and some grace. And, you know, Wittgenstein said of Kierkegaard, I don't have the depth of Kierkegaard, spiritually speaking. And I think he would say something similar about James. I think he really admired James for the ways in which James so loved human nature. So that was my backdoor into it. And there is a wonderful book out by Goodman about Wittgenstein and James. And and I just think um, Goodman's absolutely right in that, to look at the effects of um, some important Wittgensteinian concepts. So, yeah, I, I feel like Wittgenstein was my first love and, I don't know whether James is my second love or I'm cheating on Wittgenstein or, or whatever, whatever kind of, you know, relationship we got, triangulated relationship we have going on. I'm better for reading the two of them. And I'm going to say I'm better for, for reading Kierkegaard. Yeah, it's just really interesting. Uh, all those people you mentioned have been really foundational in not only my mm-hmm. philosophical life, but my personal life yep. as well. Uh, healthy minds, sick souls, and, and James's notion of, a free will and the yeah. stream of consciousness and, and how all that is wrapped up into exactly how you navigate yep. your life has, has always just been very important to me uh, personally. And, and lucky us so. that we have these intellectual companions. Yeah. I wouldn't change it for anything. Oh, oh it's so wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, we ready for this final question. Yes, I think. Easiest oh, you, question. you're liar, liar, pants Easiest on fire. Question. You said, what is philosophy was an easy question. <laughs> okay, bring it on, Andrew. What do you got? Do you want me to ask it? Or, okay. Oh, no, go ahead. Okay, so uh, what does it mean to be human? Oh, what it means to be human. What it means. Yeah, it seems like, you know, most of the conversation always leads up to this question and, and the yeah. entire, you know, our mm-hmm. interview uh, kind of answers it in a way, but it's always interesting to, to finish with it. Yeah. What does it mean to be human? What it means to be human is to be a being connected to others, a being who is looking for meaning and value and seeing the ways in which I am responsible to and for other people and mm. other, for the physical world, for the natural world. I, I'm reading, I don't know if you know the work of Daniel Wildcat, a Native American philosopher. And I've just been so deeply informed by the way he talks about, you know, are rights important? Of course, rights are important. But instead of talking about inalienable rights, I want to talk about inalienable responsibilities. So to be human is to have inalienable responsibilities that I cannot abjure, I cannot abdicate myself from, and that those responsibilities are in meeting them, having them, are part of what makes me who I am and connects me to others in the world. And so at times I'm embattled and in times I am happy and triumphant at times I am confused and that's all part and parcel of being a human being. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I see myself as a being that just wants to make more and better connections. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And that was not an easy question. (laughs) Going on record, record that. (laughs) That's that's a tried and true, you know, sort of teacher tactic. Okay, guys, uh, easy question. Mm -hmm. That's right. Spend all spend all the entire hour talking about it. Well, Peg, thank you so much for for being. Thank you. 
Thank you. Really wonderful. Yeah, just a wonderfully insightful, uh, such an inspiring book and a, a, an empowering book for anyone struggling with addiction, but really for anyone who just has questions about just the many aspects yeah. and, and difficulties of, of living. Of difficulties of living. I mean, yeah, I define... Like it's hard to be a person. It's hard to be a person. We all encounter these. And just we who have studied philosophy or have some knowledge of it, we have concepts to help us figure it out. But I think all of us are asking these kinds of questions at different ways. I will always say that the people I have met in you know, AA rooms or treatment centers mm-hmm. are some of the most philosophical people I know because they're asking mm-hmm. all these sorts mm-hmm. of questions like, who am I? How am I in the world? What meaning is there? How much choice do I have? And philosophy helped me and, and I hope that philosophy helped others. So thanks to you and this podcast, you helped spread the word as well. So thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you too. All right, everybody. Well, that was just fantastic. I hope, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as we did. So thanks for listening today, guys. And, uh, you know, don't forget to check us out on all of our social medias. You know what they are. Uh, we're on Twitter, on Instagram. We have a website, opendoorphilosophy.com. And please, if you have any questions, comments, anything you'd like to, to talk to us about, questions about the show, questions about contents of the show, hit us up at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. That's our, that's our email. And always got to jam out to our music provider, Kevin McLeod, because he has the most groovy music I've ever heard. That's right. You're listening to it right now. And uh, you know what, Andrew? I think that's it. I think that's it. I think so. Very good. Well, everyone, uh, when your life is ever in need of some philosophy, you know what to do. The door is always open. Come see us. See you later.